0: Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. Sorry for those uh, who were listening earlier and didn't catch uh, or, or it was too quiet. We got to figure it out. Uh, Dr. Swinburne is back with us and we're going to be talking about, are we bodies, our souls? We're going to be going over uh, an argument from uh, Descartes for the existence of the soul and Dr. Swinburne's adjusted, um, amended Uh, argument and some personal identity stuff it's gonna be really exciting so let's uh get right into it if you want to support the podcast support me on patreon appreciate that links in the description you can do a super thanks and uh, we're gonna have some time for some q a so uh if you guys well i'll give priority to super chats can't guarantee that we're gonna get through all of them but uh yeah go ahead and leave a super chat If, if i don't get to yours i'm sorry but uh consider it support for the podcast so thank you for doing that all right here we go Richard thanks so much uh, for for making this uh, happen again I appreciate it can I hear your volume here (laughs) yeah there we go all right perfect Um, well you people didn't really hear your first answer uh, to to the first question I asked um, which was you know why did you get into philosophy of mind from uh, philosophy of religion um yeah can you can you help us with that again
1: sure Um I'm interested in all big questions about the nature of reality and what we can know about it. So naturally, I'm interested in uh, what human beings are. Are they just bodies? Are they brains? Are they souls or whatever? But this is uh, this issue is relevant to the philosophy of religion in a big way. Um, most theistic religions believe in an afterlife that is to say they believe that after our death we shall live again either on this earth or on some other um, environment and uh, uh, that whether that is logically possible depends on what we are if we are just bodies then that is not logically possible because or at any rate uh, most of us um, these days, most people are, burnt, most bodies of the dead people are burnt in crematoria, mm-hmm. and um, uh, uh, the the, uh, the flames of the crematorium turn a body into a chunk of energy, and um, the chunk of energy resulting from uh, the burning of my body uh, wouldn't be different from the chunk of energy. Um, Uh, resulting from the burning of your body any more than if you put $100 into the bank, and then somebody else puts $100 into the bank, Uh, there's no difference in the bank, Um, uh, 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 into the same account, that is to say, in the bank. Uh, There's just $200 in the bank, but it's not dividing. uh, It doesn't have bits that come from you and bits that come from me. There's just a, a sum. And likewise with energy, um, uh, chunks of energy are the chunks they are, um, independent of where they come from. Um, and so, if that's if we are just bodies, all the same reprise. If we are just brains, um, we couldn't have a life after death. Mm-hmm. But um, if um, we, we are souls then we could have a life after death. Now, the particular version of substance dualism, which I believe consists in the view that human beings have two parts, bodies, physical objects, and souls, um, immaterial things, connected to the bodies during our lives. And it's our soul that makes us who we are. in life it interacts with the body through our uh, in virtue of having a soul we can move our bodies and we can learn about the world but um when the body ceases to function and uh, is burnt in the crematorium or perhaps the bones are saved and the bits are dissipated um then the soul is still there and um it can be rejoined to another body or continue to exist without a body and that there are no uh, logical or metaphysical problems there. So one does need a theory of what humans are, uh, which allows the possibility of life after death if a central religious doctrine is to be maintained. The philosophy of religion is also um, um, interested in Another question in the philosophy of mind, which is, do we have free will? Uh, Because um, if we don't have free will, then we're not responsible for our actions. And if we're not responsible for our actions, we can't be, as it were, um, blamed or punished justifiably for anything we do. And um, there will be a serious problem for any resolution of the problem of evil because The problem of evil, of why God allows suffering, um, a central core of uh, producing an answer to that, in my view, is that uh, uh, a lot of suffering is due to humans causing others to suffer. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, that's uh, God gives us that freedom. But if we don't have that freedom, then uh, clearly, uh, why does God... Um what's the point of God making us suffer if we're um it's, it's not our fault, or even if um natural evil is the you know, evil of diseases and so on is not our fault um nevertheless, if we have free will, we have a choice of how to react to it mm-hmm. uh, freely, and therefore, if we have free will um we are largely responsible and have the opportunity to um, uh, make ourselves do do right actions or do wrong actions. Um, and that is a major part of the answer to the problem of evil. So um, the right answer to these questions of whether we have free will and what we're uh, humans alike is crucial for the philosophy of religion, and that is a major reason why I'm interested in them.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So uh, I'll just point the audience to uh, Mind, Brain, and Free Will, an, another great book by uh, Richard Swinburne, and Are We Bodies or Souls? That's the one that we're going to be talking about today, where he goes in a little bit deeper on uh, on Descartes' argument for uh, substance dualism. So I, I have a, a slide of Descartes' argument, and I thought I could just lay it out for us here. Um, so Descartes' argument for the soul goes uh, premise one. I am a substance, which is thinking. Two, it is conceivable that I am thinking and I have no body. Three, it is not conceivable that I am thinking and do not exist. And then uh, what uh, Richard Swinburne says, uh, what he calls uh, Descartes' lemma is, I am a substance, which it is conceivable can exist without a body. And then we derive this conclusion, I am a soul, a substance, the essence of which is to think. Um, Now, uh, Richard, I, I wanted to ask about, uh the cogito argument and and whether or not that's an argument than this argument for the soul so cogito ergo sum. I, I i am thinking therefore i exist or i think therefore i am um is is this argument the same as this is it related is it is it does the cogito come before this argument um just just any initial thoughts on that
1: uh, i don't think it's relevant to talk about this actually okay um, uh it's it's not on un- It is an argument, I argue from, uh, Descartes argues from, I think, therefore I exist, and I suppose the way I've phrased the argument that you put in the handout, this is is number three, Uh, that's to say, uh, or rather it's number one plus number three, Mm -hmm. Um, um, it is not conceivable that. I'm thinking and don't exist. Uh, so uh, if I'm thinking necessarily necessarily if I'm thinking I exist and I am thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but um the, so it is connected, yes. Yeah. Uh, but um I don't think there's anything wrong with Goggito sum yeah. Um that's um clear. And um assuming that um being a substance is just being a a constituent of the world, Descartes gives definitions of substance on different places, but Mm -hmm. he would, I think, be satisfied with the notion that substance is just a thing that has properties and one of the things in the world. Uh, Given that, then one and three are pretty obvious, Um, and it all turns on two. Um, Now. Uh, Do you want me to say why I don't think this argument works just as it is?
0: Yeah, you. uh, in in the book you give a a minor and a major reason. Um, Do you you have those on top of your head? Can you give those to us?
1: Uh, Well, the minor reason is what Descartes actually argues for is the formalization on the handout is my formalization of of his argument. uh, But uh, the uh, the conclusion uh, I am a substance the essence of which is to think. Um, uh, Descartes interprets that as saying, uh, I think he, he fills it out a bit more. The whole essence of which is is to think, mm-hmm. um, something like that. Um, uh, where are we? Um, yes. Um, The the, the whole essence of I am the whole essence of which the whole essence of which is to think. Mm -hmm. Now that entails that well, if I'm not thinking, I don't exist, and that's um, well not very plausible. I mean, uh, there is such a thing as as dreamless sleep, and there's no need for Descartes to deny that, and uh, he doesn't need to. Um, All he wants to say. Is that a soul is a, or all you can get out of it is that a soul is a, uh, having a soul is necessary for uh, my existence um, and um, uh, not that it's sufficient. Minute, I've got this right, yeah. um, now, well, the, where are, the the that in, in fact is the, is the major difficulty, the, the minor difficulty. Uh, is the, the sympathy that he's trying to prove too much that I, I wouldn't exist if I wasn't thinking and there's no need for him to to do that um, and uh, sorry I expressed the other point the wrong way around. Uh, what it shows is that the argument shows um, at most that I am that having a soul is sufficient for yeah
0: but us. not it's necessary
1: sufficient. yeah. Um, If it works, that is to say, if the second premise is true, it certainly works. (laughs) Um, I am a substance. It follows from one, two, and three. I am a substance which, it is conceivable, can exist without a body. And uh, if it's conceivable, then I'm understanding conceivable as entailing logically possible in in the same sense as logically possible. And um, therefore, uh, uh, (laughs) if I'm a substance which is thinking and it's logically possible that I uh, don't have a body, uh, so having a body can't be necessary for my existence. Um, um, uh, And if it's not necessary for my existence, uh, then um, I can exist without a body. And um, so long as I have a soul, uh, I would exist, because um, if I'm thinking, um, I exist, um, and I don't need a body in order to think, Uh, need, it's not logically necessary for my existence that I have a body in order to think, and therefore it's not logically necessary for my existence uh, uh, that I have a body, but it's... Uh, As long as I have a soul that's sufficient, so that's sufficient for my existence. And I think that argument is is valid. I don't think many people would wish to deny that unless they have a view of what conceivability is irrelevant. Um, But if they think that conceivability simply means logically possible, there's no uh, if they—that's that, what's meant—then I think the argument goes through. Mm. But of course, um, it doesn't show that I now have a soul. <laughs> yeah. It shows that um, uh, if I had a soul, and um, then I could exist uh, without the body. But it doesn't show I actually have a soul. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where uh, it doesn't it goes wrong.
0: And yeah. therefore. Yeah, so I have, your, I have your amended argument as well uh, on the next slide. Um, sh- should, we, should we move to that? Or do yeah. you have? Okay, let's do that. So uh, you have this amended argument. Uh, you, you soup up Descartes' argument for the soul. And premise one is, I am a substance which is thinking. Premise two, it is conceivable that while I am thinking, my body is suddenly destroyed. Three, it is not conceivable that I am thinking and I do not exist. And then the amended lemma is, I am a substance which, it is conceivable, can continue to exist while my body is suddenly destroyed. For it is inconceivable that any substance can uh, lose all its parts simultaneously and yet continue to exist. And it looks like the conclusion got cut off. But uh, the conclusion is, I am a soul, a substance whose essential property is the capacity for thought. Whose so, essential
1: property is
0: this. Only essential property is the capacity for thought. Sure. Yeah.
1: Now, the, the difference here is what I am <laughs> claim to be conceivable is not just that I exist um, without a body, uh, but that um, it's conceivable that when I have a body, e.g., now, mm-hmm. um, I could lose that body and yet continue to exist. So, this—if this happens, then whatever is <laughs> necessary for my existence must continue. If it's conceivable first I have a what volume then lose it. If that was all there was to me, then I couldn't continue to exist. But if I have another part, and that's the essential part of me, then I could continue to exist. And it's only if there's another part that I could continue to exist. Because, Uh, you can't, nothing can go on existing if all its parts are suddenly destroyed. And if the body is the only part, it couldn't, I couldn't go on. Logically, I couldn't. Um, And um, so there's all that difference in the world. Um, And I can consider myself at any time, as it were, when I have a body, it is logically possible that now I could lose the body. Now, I'm using the word conceivable and logical possible interchangeably at the moment. We'll go into what conceivability is in a bit in a moment. Mm. Um, uh, and that surely is conceivable. And the one reason I give for this is um, um, the after death or <laughs> near death experiences, which some people have, um, they, it seems to them that um, they have left temporarily left their body and are looking down on the body from above mm-hmm. and therefore it's not their body anymore. they, they can't con- control it, but they continue to exist. Now of course, this may not be the correct interpretation of what happens. It may be that the person is having a delusion that this is what is happening. Um, uh, that, that um, he's, he's really uh, just imagining it. Um, But um, even so, we understand what he's saying, we understand what the claim is, and that's enough to make it conceivable. Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, if the premises of this argument are true, um, the conclusion must be true. Um, So the issue always turns on premise two, as i phrased
0: it. Yeah. Um yeah, so I really like this argument. I I um I wonder I I don't want to I don't want to dive too deep into this or or get too uh off track, but I wonder if someone would take issue with premise 1 again. Um you you in the book you mentioned uh Georg Lichtenberg and he says, you know, all all Descartes knows when when he's when he's thinking, he doesn't know that he's thinking. He knows that there is thinking going on. And you give this reply about substances and properties, which I I really, really like. And I wanted to share that with the audience. So, What what do you make if someone says, hey, look, premise one, I'm a substance, which is thinking. That can't be shown from uh, the the cogito because all you can know is that there's thinking going on, but not that you are the one thinking.
1: Well, thinking, say, X, so-and-so, thinking is a property. It's it's a property that the substance has, um, and uh, as it were, there wouldn't be thinking. Um, just as it's of course a uh, a property that lasts over a period of time, but it's a property all the same. It's like being square or brown or anything. A thing couldn't it couldn't be just that there is brownness. <laughs> Something has to be brown. Um, It couldn't just be that there is squareness, something has to be square. And it couldn't just be that there's motion, something has to move. And likewise with thinking, thinking is a property and therefore something has to have it. Um, And um, so uh, the minimum must be that Descartes is aware that someone is thinking, but that of course is... is, um, not all he is aware of. He's aware of I am thinking, yeah. and um, his knowledge is greater than someone's thinking. Um, it's it's more positive than that. Yeah. So I think that, into my mind, uh, deals with that matter.
0: Okay. So so then you um, and I think you're right, and um, you flesh that out in more depth uh, later in the book. Uh, you talk about different different types of designators, and I think uh, Lord willing, we can get to that as well. But so you, you say that premise two is probably the one that people will uh, find most contentious or will want to target. It is conceivable that while I'm thinking, my body is suddenly destroyed. Um, so so how do you how do you motivate this? How do you get uh, for the skeptic? I guess
1: well, the initial um, understanding of conceivability is simply that it, it makes sense. There's no contradiction in it. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can understand conceive in a subjective or an objective way, that objectively, um, to say something is conceivable is to say there is no contradiction in it. In a subjective way, it's it seems to me that there is no contradiction in it. Now, of course, it does seem to me, and it will seem to many people, uh, that there is no contradiction in this, if they can make sense of the sort of Sort experiments that I've mentioned. Um, But they may say, why should it seeming be evidence that it really is? And the quick answer to that is everything we purport to know about the world starts Mm. from seeming. And if seeming isn't evidence that something is so, then um, we wouldn't know anything. It only seems that I'm talking to you. And that's a very good reason for supposing I am. If Mm. it wasn't, if it had no. Then, uh, where would we start from? Right. Um, so um, and uh, we mu- we must, as it were, trust our reason. if we can't trust an argument or see a contradiction or so on, then uh, um, we' we're, we're lost. and uh, uh, that being the case. Uh, The evidence that something is conceivable is that it makes sense. We see that um, in the objective sense, it makes sense. We can see what it's saying. It doesn't appear to entail a contradiction. Of course, it may. (laughs) Fifteen lines down an argument entail a contradiction. But until Mm -hmm. that's shown, one has to assume that it does. And in that sense, it is conceivable, or at least it so looks. And off we go. And the objection which I devote most time in the book to considering is what I, the most, the one most uh, uh, used by objectors to it today, and that is. You don't know what you're referring to by I, mm-hmm. and so you couldn't know what it is, whether or not it's conceivable, that I'm no. thinking or not, maybe I refers to my body, or maybe it refers to something underlying my body, which uh, I know not of, and that is the objection. Yeah. And that led to my distinction between informative designators and uninformative designators. Uh, an informative designator is one which, if you know what it means, you know what it refers to. And an uninformative designator is one if you know what it means, you don't necessarily know what it refers to. I am arguing that uh, it's an informative designator. And if it's an informative designator, then you do know what you refer to. Um, you know you. you Uh, or rather you know what you're referring to when you're using it in what I call ideal circumstances. That's to say when you're rightly positioned relative to what you're talking about and you're not subject to illusion Mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, your faculties are working properly. But when you are just thinking and aware of yourself as thinking, Uh, you know what you are referring to, you are referring to this thing that is doing the thinking, the thing that you're most aware of, uh, because thinking has to belong to something, and you know what it is, because you are directly aware of it, Um, and that's what you are aware of, Um, and um, you couldn't and in that circumstance, this is the ideal condition for the application of I, because if um, you can't be subject to an illusion, you can't be really well. I think I'm thinking in fact, somebody else is doing the thinking and I'm not. Yeah. Um, that's not possible. Um, and um, your faculties merely faculties of awareness of your own mental states, and um, therefore there's no possibility of an illusion there. Um, And um, you you can't be mistaken about the immediate content of your mental life. Um, And um, uh, your faculties work properly, and uh, uh, there it is. Um, So I Understand I because I know what it's referring to in ideal circumstances. Mm-hmm. And um I know what it's referring to in the sense that I know the necessary and sufficient conditions for being I in those circumstances. But knowing necessary and sufficient conditions isn't necessarily a matter of knowing a definition. It's having the ability to recognize when the word applies and when it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, And uh, that's what is the case here. Um, I know in these circumstances, when we are talking about myself as a subject of thought, I know what is when it's true, and I know when it isn't. And that's that's all there is to
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to jump back on uh, the amended argument and see um, how how the uh, amendments that you made can help you avoid your minor and major objections to Descartes original argument. You said, you know, it's a, it's a good argument, but it's um, it only shows that you, ex- you exist while you're thinking. And it's also, it, it only shows that a soul is sufficient for existence, but not necessary. And, and that's important. You want it to be sufficient and necessary. Uh, and you want to exist while you're not thinking because we have dreams where we're not conscious perhaps. Uh, though Descartes would say now. Um, so, how does the amended uh, the, the amended lemma, the uh, the amended premise two, um, how does that help us avoid the uh, major and minor um, uh, well, reasons? Uh, the, what I call the minor objection
1: is, is simply to the way Descartes raised, um, uh raised premise one. Mm-hmm. That is to say, he thought what. Uh, He says is, or uh, what he, sorry, the way he phrased his conclusion. His conclusion was uh, that I am a soul, the whole essence of which is thinking. Um, And um, that implies that uh, if I'm not thinking, I don't exist. Uh, Well, there's no need for him to to reach that conclusion. Uh, All he needs to reach is the conclusion that I am a soul whose only essential property mm-hmm. is the capacity. The word is capacity for thought. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when we're asleep, we have the capacity for thought because if someone wakes us up, we can think. Yeah. Um, and um, But on the other hand, if we're a corpse, nobody can wake us up, so we've lost the capacity the
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, so w- when you say... Um, okay, so only essential property is the capacity for thought. Some people... We we'll want to push back on that. But, you know, there's, you know, there's feelings and there's all sorts of other stuff that uh, that is essential to me. Even if I go along with you and say, you know, I'm essentially, a soul rather uh, than a body. And so, I just wanted to to get, you know, what, what do we mean by thought? It, I think in the book, yeah, you include other yeah, Descartes things.
1: Descartes himself says uh, somewhere, and I, I quote quoted that um, that um, he, he means by thought all, all the typical. Uh, uh, mental states. Um, That's to say, um, intentions and feelings and so on. Um, uh, I could find the quotation that he himself means that. And indeed, I do. That is to say, what is essential for me is some uh, the ability to have conscious events to be conscious Mm-hmm. It may take the form of thought in, in a narrower sense of thinking about philosophy or something, but so long as it includes, it may take the form of uh, act, performing an intentional action or um, uh, having a sensation or a belief or a desire, um, it's, all, it's the uh, capacity to have mental events. Mental events being those to which the subject has privileged access, that is to say, I know better than anyone else. I may not know perfectly, but I know, I know better than anyone else, or I can know better than anyone else. What I'm thinking about, what I'm feeling, what I believe, and so on.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, um,
1: that's um. So that, that's the first first point. Um. Uh, so he needn't claim that um, um, <laughs> uh, that uh, I, I don't exist when when I am not thinking at all in, in that wide sense. All he needs, all he ought to be able to uh, conclude from this, is that I am a soul whose only essential property is the capacity for thought because if I have the capacity for thought when I'm exercising it, of course I exist, but that, that, that allows the possibility that I exist when I'm not exercising it. Right. And, um, but it's the, the issue is, um, well, yes, and if it meets the the, t- the two difficulties. This, the first difficulty being, this is trying, uh, uh, to prove too narrow a claim that I only exist I exist only when I'm thinking um, it, it, all one needs to say is that uh, so long as I have the it proves that when I have the capacity for thought I exist and but the wider thing is that um, the original argument did not show that um, having a soul was a necessary condition existence only that
0: it was a sufficient condition. Yeah. yeah. That's that's really helpful. I love I love the uh, your amended argument there. Uh, just a a, a a peripheral question. Um when when so I'm a soul a substance uh, whose you know soul capacity or whose only uh, essential capacity is for thought um is that soul a synonymous with mind? Do you use those interchangeably or does the substance uh, the soul have a mind or, or something like that?
1: I avoid this word mind. Yeah. Um, I specifically say that because it could be used in a sense. People are said to have a mind just because they can, uh, they can give an argument or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm using soul in Plato's sense. It's it's a separate thing from me, which constitutes my existence. It isn't a physical thing, physical thing being something to which everybody has equal access. It is something to which I have privileged access, um, and indeed infallible access. and um, it's what makes me, me, but it's not a physical thing, but it is in temporary uh, interaction with a physical thing, my body.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's really helpful. How about, um, this is another one that could be kind of us down into a morass, but is, is the soul, um, we're, we're going to talk about personal identity over time and how the soul is, is uh, so important for that. Is the soul the person, or does the person have a soul? Does... Uh,
1: well, um, the body is part of me, of course, but it's not an essential part. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there's the sense of I have a soul is just that the soul is a part of me. Of course, it's the one and only essential part of me in my view, but it's a part all the same. Yeah. Um, and um, so in that sense, I have a soul, mm-hmm. but um, for all the mental predicates, um, it is the case, uh, or rather for all the pure mental predicates, those that don't entail the existence of body, um, for all the pure mental predicates, it is the case that if I... Think then my soul thinks, and I think because my soul thinks. If I have a, um, a pain, then uh, my soul has a pain, and I have a pain because my soul has a pain.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, there's nothing strange about that. I mean, uh, if I have a tattoo, um, um, I have a tattoo because my arm has a tattoo. But uh, there's only one tattoo. goes <laughs> with the, uh, the relation between me having. Your mental
0: property and my soul having your mental property. Yeah, I th- I think that's helpful. Uh, that lets dualists this avoid uh, the too many thinkers problem that yes, animalists yes. Uh, run into. That's right. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um. Well, so so on that note, then you 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 argue that having a soul is um is necessary for personal identity over time. Is that the right language? Is that is that too strong? Um. Or is uh, it is it the best uh, explanation? Or it is necessary.
1: Uh. Uh, it is necessary and sufficient for my existence. Mm. Um, and um, it's necessary. And uh, when I discuss, uh, as it were, the argument from neuroscience, um, uh, all that, that shows is that having a soul is necessary. It doesn't show that it's sufficient.
0: Mm. Okay. Well, um, so you use. Uh... You set up different theories of, of uh, personal identity. You got complex theories and then you have the, the simple theory. Um, what distinguishes uh, a complex theory from from a simple theory? Can you just help us out with that? Uh,
1: yeah, well, a uh, complex theory says that uh, these a theory of personal identity, uh, by which we mean diachronic personal identity, what makes me or anyone the same person as a person at an earlier time or at a later time. Um, a complex theory analyzes that in terms of having the, <laughs> the same body or having the same brain or having the uh, uh, same sort of memories. Um, all of which are things that you can have to different degrees. Mm-hmm. You can have some of the same body, or some of the same brain, or uh, some of the same memories. And uh, the, they're complex in the sense that uh, you have to have enough of, according to these theories, enough of the same body, or enough of the same brain, or enough mm-hmm. memories, and so on. Um, and of course, they, they spell out what constitutes enough and they usually say it's not merely having enough of these, but having uh, the, the, the body or brain or mental life at the later time has to be causally, uh, has to be caused in part by the mental life, or brain or body at the earlier time. Um, but um, it's the degree, but causation is not going to be enough, is it? Uh, uh, I could cause things to happen to your brain without in any sense uh, it being my brain. Um, And uh, But um, so they all say, well, if you have enough of this, um, then that's what makes uh, me, me at the later time. Uh, As opposed to the simple theory which says either that person is or that person isn't and this is not, Further analy- analyzable in terms of any property or stuff which mm-hmm. is capable of division.
0: Yeah, and and you go on to motivate this uh, with your Alexandra uh, argument, uh, and, oh. and it it does so much work. It's really really cool. Um, do you do you want to lay that out? You do you, um, the the oh, uh, brain transplant. Simple, really, um, uh, I'm i do it in
1: terms of current neuroscience, but it would work if the the neuroscience was a bit different. But Mm -hmm. the neuroscience is um, our thoughts, feelings, our mental life are dependent on the operation of our cerebral cortex, the part of the brain that's um, on the top. Um, And um, we have uh, a left, hemisphere, the brain, and the right hemisphere, and they've each got cerebral cortexes. Mm. And um, it's a very interesting neural fact that some people, unfortunate people, have had to have most or even all of that one of their cerebral cortexes removed uh, in an operation um, called an anatomical hemispherectomy. Uh, They this is done if in very acute cases of epilepsy. It's a, a way of dealing with it. Now, you might think that made a difference to the person. The interesting thing is, well, it does make some difference um, to their motor capacities. They can't immediately move uh, both arms or anything like that. Hmm. It makes little difference to uh, their, their thoughts and feelings and so on. Yeah. Uh, so, as it were, one of these hemispheres is enough to have the thoughts and feelings and so on you do. Okay, but now suppose that um, one of your hemispheres is removed and the hemisphere is removed from some other person and uh, what was my left hemisphere uh, is put in the other person instead of their left hemisphere and connected up to their body. Now of course this operation can't yet be done, and it may take many decades before it can be done, but there's no reason in principle why it can't be done because um, uh, surgeons are now beginning to learn how to mend spinal injuries. That is to say where um, somebody's uh, uh, spinal nerves have been cut or (laughs) broken and that they can't move their um, arms and legs. And the neurons which make up a spinal uh, tract are same sort of neurons as make up the brain. And um, if uh, they, they can mend these, uh, then they can put uh, uh, some other one instead of it. And um, so it ought in theory to be possible uh, to replace a hemisphere by a hemisphere taken from someone else. Mm-hmm. It's not um, hemispheres are, are fairly separate in the brain. They are connected to each other in the middle by um, a, a, a tract of nerves and one yeah. or two minor tract of nerves.
0: The corpus callosum. Yes, right? the
1: corpus yeah. callosum, and um, uh, there are well, other connections. But I mean, it's not just cutting out a quite a, an arbitrary chunk of the brain or anything like right. that. Uh, so it ought, in theory, to be possible. Okay, but now, uh, suppose that other person has both their hemispheres removed and one of my hemispheres, the left, put there. That person, because all their thoughts and feelings are dependent on the hemisphere, will clearly claim to have been me. Mm-hmm. And I will claim to have been me. And in all respects... um. The extent to which each of, at least so it looks, um, uh, each each of us uh, makes these claims, and there doesn't seem no reason for preferring one to the other, mm-hmm. um, or if you think there is, because the brainstem, as I described this experiment, is the same in both cases. Well, can suppose that uh, both hemispheres are removed from me. And each of them put in a different body, so that, as it were, the brainstem is uh, (laughs) isn't at all the same. Uh, But um, that oughtn't to make any difference because um, uh, the uh, brain—this is—doesn't seem to be uh, essential for consciousness, Um, and consciousness. What the content, it may be essential to being conscious, but what the content of consciousness is depends on the cerebral cortex. So um, you get the situation of brain, half brain transplants, uh, uh, and that raises the issue of which, if either of the subsequent persons, is the same as the original person. Mm And um, what is a a complex theory to say about this? Well, the complex theory, I have to say, well, it depends on just whether they have uh, more memories or whether they have a bit more of the brain or so on. But the the problem is this looks extraordinarily arbitrary. Um, You know, 50%, 51%, 52%, how much do you need? Um, It would be absurd to say that just because one of these guys has 51% and the other has 49%, this one is and that one isn't, that would be highly arbitrary. And they're not going to be exactly the same. Uh, There are certain things for which the left hemisphere is much more needed than for the right hemisphere, and conversely.
0: Right.
1: uh, So um, they're not going to be exactly the same. And it may be that makes me, it's essential to me, is carried by the left hemisphere, it maybe it's carried by the right hemisphere, but there's no way of finding out, since most of the, what is essential to my life of thought is carried by both hemispheres. Yeah. Um, and um, any uh, and there are plenty of accounts in the literature of philosophers who thought of, um, says it's me if... Um, If it has more of the brain, more of the memories, Um, or um, they sometimes add a clause, so long as uh, uh, (laughs) the other person doesn't have very much or something like that. But it's highly arbitrary. And um, um, arbitrary if there's only one transplant, to say it isn't me, and uh, if... uh, in, in most of these uh, cases, uh, there will be the possibility of a second person with a, a, an equal claim to be me. Uh, and um, so, I mean, all of the all the theories which analyze personal identity in terms of continuity of properties or stuff which makes the person that person are open to this uh, objection.
0: Yeah, I, I I love this objection, and I love thinking about like a, a set of triplets. And you take, you know, a hemisphere from this one and put in this one and this, and you can just keep shuffling them around. And uh, I think it really draws out the the argument well that like it's not the complex theories are are insufficient for personal identity over time. Um, I the the book you, you do such a good job in the book, so I definitely commend this to everyone. I I have a couple um more tangential questions again for you um so so folks like read the read this book cuz the treatment's really really well done but uh, richard do you do you think that um do you think that souls are like are, are they spatially located do they follow a certain amount of the brain if it's transferred um what what do you make of that
1: well uh, <laughs> uh... Who knows yeah, right. <laughs> uh, uh, it's reasonable to suppose that if uh, only a tiny bit of my brain is removed uh, and I go on behaving in the same way and so on, uh, there's no reason to postulate that uh, a different person is in charge because mm. this is it would be uh, an arbitrary supposition to suppose uh, that for me'm um, Removal of one bit, which makes no difference to behaviour and so on, is going to make any difference to who is in charge of it. Uh, but um, when you get to the uh, more extreme cases of uh, changing brains and so on, um, the answer is, I don't know uh, <laughs> where I go. And That's just the point. That is the point that I don't know it doesn't follow from the description of what has happened um, in public terms and nothing follows uh, as to which person is me but of course the more um, the later person has memories similar to mine and uh, the more uh, the later person has brain similar to mine the more probable it is that that's me but that's the most you can say
0: yeah that's really helpful um, so I'll, I'll ask two more questions. And and while I do that, and while, um, while Richard is responding, folks, go ahead and put your questions in the live chat. Again, I will prioritize uh, super chats because I can see them better and because uh, you're supporting the podcast. So, uh, so t- two follow-up questions uh, as people are, are typing their questions in the chat there. Um, one is about uh, memories um, and, and near death experiences. Do you just, Sometimes um, when when substance dualists talk about, I'm a substance with myself, but when when someone's coming on to help me think through substance dualism, um, they'll they'll kind of refer to the soul as if it's um, like a bare particular or, um, or yeah, the the soul just has this ca- the soul capacity the esen- there's only one essential property and that is the capacity for thought, right? Uh, yeah. Does the soul? Do you think the soul remembers things, or is it just this like? This thing with one property that is just the capacity for thought. Like, do you know what I'm yes. getting at there?
1: Yes, I do, and it's a very important question. This um, I don't discuss this that question in this book. That I do discuss it in mind, brain, free will. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the the view that, as it were, the, when we have memories and um, indeed the whole beliefs and desires which continue over time, um, whether the continuity is due to the beliefs, desires, and memories in hearing in the soul, mm-hmm. or whether it is due to <laughs> the brain being in such a state that it always throws up the same memories and right. desires, so mm-hmm. as long as that soul is connected with it. And they call the first view the categorical view and the second view the dispositional view. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I think it's... I wouldn't wish to uh, come down very strongly on either side in okay. this matter, but I think the, there is reason for believing that the, the categorical theory is to some extent right. I mean, to some extent it means means... Well, Perhaps some of these things here in the soul, and others don't. Oh, okay. uh, and the reason is this. Um, uh, suppose you're going, uh, walking from A to B, and um, you know the route, and um, uh, you take this turn and that turn and then this turn and that turn. And you take this turn and that turn and so on because of your beliefs. You believe that if I take this turn, I will reach this road. And then if I reach this road and go that way, then I'll get there. But um, you never think of this while you're actually walking because you are familiar with the situation. You may be talking about philosophy to someone as you're doing the journey. Uh, But the belief is influencing your conduct. but not merely when you're conscious of it, but when you're not conscious of it. Um, and and uh, that suggests that <laughs> uh, but beliefs um, are pretty central uh, things uh, to you. Uh, um, how can I express it a bit better? Um, uh, No, I don't think I can express it a bit better. Uh, It it is just that um, the beliefs of which you are conscious interact with the beliefs of which you are not conscious. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, they're both beliefs. Um, I may, when I'm walking along, have certain beliefs which I am conscious of is that I am talking to Jones and uh, therefore we go, need to go together and so on and so forth. And that is interacting with my beliefs which are unconscious and directing the steps I take. Now, this is, clearly our beliefs influence us when we are conscious mm-hmm. um, of them. But th- this shows that our beliefs influence us when we are not conscious of them. And it would be strange if the way the beliefs influence us was different according to whether we were conscious of them, and whether we are not conscious of them. Yeah. Um, and um, that doesn't solve it all together, but it does suggest... Um, because if you take the dispositional view, that as it were, they're not there until they're needed, (laughs) until we're conscious of them, Uh um, uh, that has the consequence that, um, as it were, uh, their influence on our conduct is very different from the influence of our conduct when we are conscious of them. For example, when we are actually doing an argument from belief A to belief B, and for that reason, I do go along with the categorical um, view. To some, well, I don't think that argument's conclusive, but it does tip it in that direction. Mm-hmm. And of course, it would be more convenient for a religious view if the con- categorical view were true, because um, we would arrive if we arrive at life after death without the original body. Then we wouldn't have all the bad uh, tendencies and all the memories <laughs> of our evil deeds and so on.
0: Yeah. With uh, us, and
1: it would seem, uh, you know, why am I being punished or whatever? <laughs>
0: right. right.
1: Uh, whereas, if they inhere in us, um, then that that makes sense. Um, so that is certainly desirable for. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessary because God would know right, what the soul would have done, but we wouldn't be aware of it. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that's yeah. what I think about that.
0: Okay, that's really helpful. I, I think also with, with uh, NDEs, with near death experiences, um, whether you take those to be uh, vertical or not, like if, if you do, then there is some, uh, some more evidence for the categorical categorical view that like our memories in here in our soul Oh
1: yes I, i'm a bit doubtful about those experiences okay. i must say but yeah uh.
0: yeah okay all right so last one for me and then we're going to move to audience questions and again it's kind of a more speculative one but as as a substance dualist uh richard do you think it's possible for humans to create artificial consciousness which with um you know similar qualitative experiences to ourselves yeah.
1: well the only evidence that anyone is conscious is that they have the sort of brain that we have. Uh, it's not enough to say, uh, not enough evidence of consciousness to say they react in a certain way. You could have a machine which no one would think was conscious, uh, made of steel and silicon chips, which if you stick a pin in it, it'll scream. Yeah. Uh, also you could, and uh, uh, computer scientists are on their way to making one that would pass the original Turing test of talking to me for an hour. Uh, But um, uh, the fact that um, some machine uh, reacts in the way that we do, because it's been made to, doesn't show that what's going on in the machine is causing it in the the way that what's going on in us is causing us to behave in this way. So, uh, what we would want is evidence that um, the sort of thing is that's happening in the machine uh, is um, that in the machine uh, uh, there's this, that, uh, there is going on in the machine the sort of thing that goes on in our brains when mm-hmm. we are conscious. Now, of course, this crucially applies to the case of animals. Um, uh, Invertebrates don't have our sort of brain. And for that reason, they may be conscious, but we have no good reason to suppose they are. They Mm. just react. Um, And um, uh, higher up the scale, um, we have... uh, very little reason, I think, to suppose that uh, there's very much consciousness until you get to the mammals. But anyway, the point is, the argument goes: Look, uh, this creature has a prefrontal con- uh, cortex, and things happen in that cortex of the sort that happens cortex, the sort that happens in us when someone sticks a pin in me. So, probably that being is conscious. So, as regards our making something, if we make something out of silicon chips. um, I don't see that which reacts in the right way. I don't see any grounds for supposing it is conscious, it might be, but if if we made it out of bits of the sort of thing we are made of, uh, that's to say, if we brought it into existence not by a sexual procurer, Procreation, but by a surgical operation which took bits from bits <laughs> from various dead bodies and, and stirred them up, then it might well be conscious. Hmm. That would be okay.
0: okay, so so maybe we can we can hack into like the psychophysical laws that that God set up to establish soul body connections. Um,
1: yeah, well, yes, I, I I'm inclined to think there are soul body uh, laws. Um, but that is the all important thing. Laws of nature are laws which say something of this kind with this sort of property will cause something of that kind with that sort of property. Um, an arrangement of uh, bodies with this sort of mass and this sort of velocity will lead to bodies with this sort of mass and that sort of velocity Um, and uh, mixing this and that chemical substance would make a substance of that kind. But, uh, um, and therefore the laws, psychophysical laws would have the form of when a human fetus reaches this stage then it produces causes the existence of a soul.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: it doesn't say it causes the existence of this soul. It doesn't say right. it causes me or anything else. Because what makes me me is not anything ex- <laughs> uh, uh, is, uh, is not analyzable further. Right. Um, and I argue that I have thisness. That is to say, instead of me, there could be a human being who had just the same life, um, same life history and so on, uh, uh, came into being in the same way, but wasn't me. That also seems to make sense, and I can give a further argument for it if you want to moment. Uh, but to say that is to say that souls have thisness. Yeah. Souls aren't the only thing that may have thisness it's a serious discussion uh, in uh, physics as to whether fundamental particles have thisness that yes. is to say would the world be different if instead of a certain electron here there was another different electron there it would have all the same properties as the first electron would be in the same place and so on, um, and um, uh, the same history but uh, could it be different the normal answer in physics is no, because electrons don't have thisness, so any electron in that place with just those properties would be the same electron. Yeah. Now, it seems to me that isn't the case with humans. Um, instead of me, there could be a different one who was different just in the respect it was me. And if that's right, then... Uh, <laughs> uh, then no scientific law could explain that because scientific laws never deal
0: with mm. things
1: that have thisness. Yeah. They only deal with things in virtue of their properties. And the properties of the person thrown up by my brain might be just the same, Mine the features would be just the same as the properties um, thrown up. Uh, uh, even if uh, it wasn't me who had these properties but had this uh, yeah. someone else um, and uh, once again my argument from that is firstly from conceivability can we can make sense of this suggestion but um, I could make a further point but I'm concerned about your audience yeah. yeah
0: so so thisness is like a it's a it's an essential property to me it's a quiddity or a hexady or something where it's just it's mine. You can't have it, and it, that's it. You can't analyze it anymore. Yeah, I really like that. All right, well, that's that's enough for me. Um, I appreciate it. Those, those. Those were really fun. Um, let's get to the first super chat here. Um, <clears throat> all right, this is from uh, Adrian. He says, "What do you think about hylomorphism uh, views? Hylomorphic yes. views? Uh,
1: this is uh, the Thomist view um, that um, uh, what uh, I consist in is." Uh, having a soul, my soul, and having this body. Um, And um, that is to say that uh, the body is not merely a body, but this body is necessary for me. I have to have both Mm -hmm. a body and a soul and indeed this body. Now, uh, and it's hylomorphism because... um, on this view, the soul is the form of the body. That's to say it's the way the body behaves. Um, and uh, uh, is matter. It's the way the matter behaves uh, that uh, forms me. Um, it's the way that, that um, the matter that's me uh, behaves in the sense of throws up thoughts and feelings and so on, as well as doing public acts. And that's what makes it me. Mm-hmm. Now, I think um, that is mistaken. Um, uh, but uh, I think I better say what <laughs> why uh, uh, the only version that uh, the average Thomist will give you um, isn't really a hypermorphic view at all, mm. um, because uh, it all Hylomorphism dates back to Aristotle, and Aristotle said um, that what makes this desk the desk it is is the matter of which it's made and the shape in which it's formed. And of course, that's so for stationary physical objects. It would also be so for physical objects which have properties of motion. Um, what makes uh, the car the car it is? is uh, partly the way that it will behave over time, and that's a property of it. So it's the matter of which the thing is made and the properties which are instantiated in it. Mm -hmm. And um, Aquinas thought that that's what makes uh, me (laughs) the person I am. But for Aristotle, properties are universals. That Mm -hmm. is to say, what makes the desk the desk it is, is first that it's a desk, and the desk being a desk is a property possessed by this chunk of matter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But then, on this view, um, as adjusted by Aquinas, um, if one took that model seriously, then um, every soul would be the same. That is to say, it would have. The soul would be the form of humanity
0: the universal uh, form yeah
1: yeah well not the universal form but the form of being human yeah um, all humans would have the same form mm-hmm. uh, and um, it would be their bodies which distinguish them yeah. but in that case uh, the soul would not be the, the form of this body um it's it would be the general uh, form of humanity Uh, And souls don't individuate by themselves, Um, uh, the individuation on the Aristotelian model consists in the chunk of matter, but uh, Aquinas would accept, uh, the hylomorphic theory would have to uh, accept, uh, that um, the soul can exist by itself and uh, what makes it it is uh, therefore not carried by the body. Uh, Aquinas of course wants to say that the soul is not the whole person but the mere um, admitting that our soul can exist without the body commits him to the view that uh, identity is carried partly at least by the soul and that gives him a view of soul which is utterly different from the notion that it's just a collection of properties. Um, Furthermore, of course, in saying that, um, uh, for Aristotle, properties can't really exist unless there are things in which they exist. Hmm. Uh, uh, Desks the property of deskness doesn't exist except where there are desks.
0: Right. No um, uninstantiated forms, right?
1: Yeah. But uh, the form, the soul, which is the form of body, um, the form of the body, according to Aristotle, according to Aquinas, must both be individual and capable of existing without uh, the body. So it's a very, for- a very strange form of. Uh, Aristotelian soul and it seems to me that if it can exist by itself um, uh, if it can exist on its own and have as Aristotle as Aquinas wanted to say a certain conscious life without um, uh, without the body then, it uh, uh, seems that a person exists without a body. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, uh, Aquinas goes on about uh, uh, the souls of the saints in heaven uh, are always praying for us and so on and so forth, but <laughs> if they have the souls are praying for us, surely the saints are praying for us. Right. And uh, uh, so, um, as used in, in a Christian context, it simply is boils down to Descartes' own view, I think. Yeah. But of course, you could take it a, a little more seriously and say, well, what makes me me is really a form, if Aristotle sense, um, and the form of humanity. And what makes me me is the, the chunk of form of humanity being instantiated in this particular chunk Mm -hmm. that runs into all the problems of how much of this particular chunk right we were talking of earlier yeah if i lose an arm it's still me if i lose half a brain is it still me Hmm. um all these problems re-emerge yeah um unless you suppose that the soul has individuation is individuated um contains its own principle of individuation and hence a simple view of the soul and um uh, if you do that and therefore allow that it could uh, that what makes a person the person it is is not just the form or the chunk of matter Something else, Um, then the hylomorphic theory begins to collapse into Descartes' view. So, my answer is Aquinas' view is really, in essence, the same as Descartes' view, uh, only he's unwilling to admit it. Um, uh, But if you took it uh, seriously as a hydromorphic view, it would be back with Aristotle, and that leads to all the problems uh, we were talking about earlier.
0: Yeah, I love that, and you did you did mention a bit of that in in are we bodies or souls and comparing Descartes and and uh, and Thomas there. Uh, so that's so great. They 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 will run into uh, if you take it too seriously the arbitrariness objection or the more than one candidate objection yeah. that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, all right, just let's, let's go to uh, another question here. Um, this is from Chad. What explanatory virtues does dualism have over panpsychism?
1: Uh, well, um. Let's have a look at panpsychism. Um, panpsychism says everything is conscious. Well, uh, what earthly reason have you got to believe that? Hmm. Um, it's uh, multiplying consciousnesses beyond necessity to start with. Um, uh, <laughs> to explain all the things around us um, in terms, of, uh, we, we know that we are conscious. Other people are very like us in the way they're constituted. Animals are somewhat like us in the way they're constituted. That's good reason to believe that they are conscious. But we have no reason to believe that desks and tables and chairs are conscious. Um, then, of course, the psychist says, well, it's not desks and tables and chairs. It's uh the atoms of which things are made that that have consciousness. But that runs into the trouble about, well, okay, I'm conscious um, and uh, uh, so are the individual atoms of which I am made, they're conscious too. Uh, What's the relation between their consciousness and my consciousness? Mm uh, my consciousness can hardly be said to be the sum of these because um, <laughs> either I'm conscious or I'm not. And if you take a bit away, sometimes it doesn't make a difference to my consciousness, and sometimes it makes all the difference to my consciousness. So um, I think panpsychism has these two problems. It, it attributes to Material objects consciousness when there's not the slightest reason to believe that they're consciousness of the sort that we have for believing other people and animals are consciousness. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it has the problem of explaining how um, both the stuff of which things are made, each bit is conscious and also the whole is conscious and yet the whole's consciousness is not the same as the sum of the bits is consciousness because uh, uh, I am uh, the bits are conscious on their own as it were when they're separate Uh, and uh, so they're conscious but I only have one consciousness so um, both uh, what I'm made of and me are conscious. And uh, that does again proliferate things. Yeah. Uh, without explaining how the one is connected to the
0: other. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. Um, all right. We got one. Uh... Just, just let's do maybe just two more here, um, Dr. Swinburne. What are your thoughts on causal closure arguments against substance dualism? And I'll, I'll note that uh, you do talk about interactive dualism. You have a whole chapter in Mind, Brain, and Free Will, so I, I do recommend people grab both of these books and uh, give them a thorough reading.
1: Um, I'm not quite certain what you mean about a causal closure argument. I wonder if you could uh, explain that. Yeah.
0: Maybe, maybe like a uh, uh, conservation of energy type stuff, right? So, so we, we have interactive oh, it's the, uh,
1: causal yeah. closure of the physical,
0: yeah. Sorry, Yep.
1: yeah. Um, well, uh, I don't think the physical is <laughs> causally closed. Um, uh, I discussed this in chapter six of this book. Um, if you Uh, suppose that um, the physical is causally closed. You therefore only get the only uh, causal interaction between the physical and the mental was not an interaction, it would be a one way business uh, from from the brain to the soul. Um, And uh, uh, if uh, you thought that was the case, then um, how would you know anything about what had? How would you uh, be able to rely on your memories? Uh, how would you be able to know what other people are telling you, etc.? Now the way this works is like this: um, Suppose I do a certain thing today, and I remember next day that I've done it. How is this uh, procedure? Uh, what's happening? Well, the normal view, and surely correctly, is that my doing it yesterday laid down some trace in the brain and uh, that trace in the brain uh, caused it it to pop up the next day. But then, (laughs) that is already uh, postulating in stage one, a downward action, an Mm -hmm. action from the mental to the physical. And if you think that doesn't happen, then uh, why on earth should we believe our memories? Because they wouldn't be able to influence our present mental state. And um, likewise, uh, if if you know about other people's mental states and what they do and so on, because they tell you it. But if you thought um, and you believe them because you believe they are trying to tell you the truth, but if you thought that there was no downward action, you wouldn't think that the words that come out of their mouths were caused by their beliefs <laughs> uh, because beliefs can't cause uh, things so generally, unless you're to be totally
0: skeptical, you've got to believe there's a downward causation yeah, yeah. that's really good i I love that um one more from from um this one's from Scott Terry, who just sent in a $50 super chat, which is awesome. He, he's, he's awesome. He said um, the, evolu- the evolution of the soul was one of the first philosophy works he ever read. So uh, there's a little uh, tip of the hat to you as well. But uh, Dr. Swinburne, so his question uh, in this one is, what are the implications of your position for models of the Trinity? And I wonder um, maybe if you could address like the, the thisness or quiddity or hexade two Does that have any implications or, or did you come to your, your model of the Trinity in a different way?
1: Oh dear, that is going to take us a long way, I think, from this. I think I'd rather not answer that question because I have to go into a lot of things that, uh, you know, we're not talking about today. Um, But I'm just going to make one short point. Mm
0: -hmm. that,
1: in my view, uh, the members of the Trinity do not have thisness.
0: Okay. Um, Um, They are what
1: they are in virtue of their relation to each other, that Mm. is to say the Father is the Father because he is the source of Son and Spirit. Um, The Son is the Son because caused by the Father and not caused by the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit because co-caused by the Father and the Son. Uh, okay. They are what they are in virtue of their relations. We are not what we are in virtue of our relations. And yeah. that is the difference.
0: Okay. What well, you said uh, when you say co-caused um, is that is that um, procession from the Father and the Son?
1: Uh, well, it may be. Uh, there okay. are all different ways in which it is expressed in the Western, Eastern Christianity. Yeah. as you <laughs> may be aware, yeah. the Western doctrine, which was not in the original creed, but was uh-huh. added by later popes, uh, was that um, the, the spirit proceeds from the father and the son, and the East objected to that being put in the creed, but they're not necessarily against the truth of that doctrine.
0: Okay, okay. Um,
1: uh, and um, the Eastern doctrine can be uh, expressed in one of two ways either you say that, as it were, the uh, Son and the Spirit are each caused separately by the Father, and that would contradict the Western view, but it's also acceptable in Eastern Christianity to say that the Spirit is caused by the Father through the Son, Mm. and um, that seems to me tantamount to the Western doctrine um and in fact um aquinas uh has a discussion of this and aquinas and scotus they, they both say that if you put the eastern doctrine this way then there is no real difference
0: wow that's awesome i'm, gl- I'm glad to, to i'm glad you made that clarification about thisness because that would seem like like a tritheism or something but if the divine nature has thisness then that that's fantastic thanks for so much for for addressing that even uh even know, it was off topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dr. Swinburne, uh, you've been, you've been huge. This has been uh, fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to change the audio and get that all figured out. Um, I, I just want to finish by saying, uh, so many of us have really, really appreciated your work, have grown from it, have been able to defend our faiths, uh, because of your work and it continues to have ripple effects uh throughout throughout the world so thank you so much for what you do and for doing this as well you're
1: very kind i'm sorry about the initial uh, difficulties but uh, there we are <laughs> i don't yeah. understand these machines
0: <laughs> yeah me neither well okay. that's gonna have to do it folks uh this has been parker's pensies and as always all glory to god
1: okay good well thanks